You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAMorg and Facebook. Now, let's go beyond the abstract. Welcome to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. I'm your host, Dr. Sean McNeil, Digital Content Editor for the Journal of Addiction Medicine. Today, we're joined by Caleb Banta-Green. He's the Principal Research Scientist at the Alcohol and Drug Abuse Institute at the University of Washington. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Banta-Green. I'd like to start off by asking you about your background and uh, particularly about how you came to be involved in the field of addictions. Sure. So, you know, currently I'm a health services researcher and an epidemiologist, um, but I think sort of my origins matter uh, for this type of work, and that is my original social work training was doing medical social work and doing um, addiction-related work with people with opioid use disorder. And then I also got interested in public health research and evaluation, did epidemiology for a while, and then moved into becoming a health services researcher. And what's really important to me is combining all those aspects of my work. And by that, I mean not forgetting to ask people whom we want to be providing care for what's going on and what services would they like and how would they like to get them. Um, so, you know, really using that to catalyze uh, research ideas and then going ahead and trying to build interventions that actually meet people's interests and needs um, rather than trying to figure out how do we force people into our current uh, healthcare systems. Okay. And, and speaking of um, who needs the interventions, it sounds like the current study takes a look at how to target this population. So would you say a word about how you decided to seek out these individuals and why did you choose syringe exchange programs? Sure. So I'll answer that in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, having done my original training in a methadone maintenance clinic, methadone's been around since 1971. It's a really great modality of care. It works very well, but it's actually only serving a small proportion of the population, a minority of the population with opioid use disorder who would benefit from medications. And even with buprenorphine coming out in 2002 for opioid use disorder and primarily getting used in primary care, that is still also only serving a minority of the population of people with opioid use disorder. So um, we do a lot of work with people at syringe exchanges. And when you ask people there, uh, we sort of had this anecdotal finding of, well, of course, most people don't want to be using, um, but let's actually document that. And um, the idea also comes out of this frustration, I think, that we often say people don't want treatment. And they may not want treatment with a capital T or our healthcare with all of its hassles and bells and whistles, but they don't want to be using and they do want our services. And so the intent of this work was to reach out to where people are at uh, 18 syringe exchanges across Washington State, over a thousand folks, and ask them, um, you know, what they want and would they like to decrease their use and, and then to start looking at with future research as well, what services would they like? So that was the basic premise is we know the majority of people who would benefit um, from opioid use disorder medications aren't getting them. And we know uh, that there are a lot of folks who don't want to be using, and we think syringe exchange might be a good place to access those folks. So we chose to just go about trying to document that. All right. Uh, were there any other locations that you considered when designing the study? 
No, I think we really wanted to start there. Um, I should say Washington State has a very long history, in fact, has the oldest syringe exchange in the United States dating back to 1988. So we have uh, about 25 operating syringe exchanges in Washington State putting out uh, over 17 million syringes a year. So we have a very robust network um, of syringe exchanges. And then also importantly, Washington State and the West Coast compared to other parts of the United States, most of our heroin um, still comes from Mexico and is black tar and is largely injected. So most opioid users on the West Coast are accessing, uh, are utilizing syringes um, and most of them are using syringe exchange. So at least in our locale, it really was a logical place to start. We are interested in the future about going to other places where people are getting other social and health and homeless services. But we really felt, given a really robust network of syringe exchanges, um, that was a great place to sample and reach out to folks. And it's also, we know this programs, they would like to be providing services as well. And so we wanted to help them identify uh, the level of need. Okay, great. The next question I had is, uh, I wondered about the design of the actual survey that you administered to the subjects. Um, I was wondering how you designed the survey and also did you draw inspiration from any of your previous work? Sure. So um, in Seattle, King County, uh, there's been a syringe exchange survey going on for more than a decade. And I've actually worked with many students to analyze those data. And what happened is is that we had a, um, a, a statewide conference in early 2015. We actually had the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, Michael Botticelli, out. And at that meeting, we had over 400 people from around the state. And they said, we need our local data. And they heard about the King County survey. And they said, we need those data for our community. So that was really what catalyzed it was all of these providers from law enforcement, public health, and treatment saying, we really need our local um, data. And so we were drawing on that express need from all these providers around the state and this historical survey that we've been doing at the Seattle King County Public Health Syringe Exchange for many years. We asked the question, would you like to stop or reduce your opioid use? We purposely did not ask people, do you want treatment? Because that's a totally different question. And that's something that we kind of pilot tested a little bit, but that really resonated with folks. We wanted to ask the, con- the concrete behavioral thing that they wanted to change, not what we think of as the right intervention being treatment. Um, and so that's why we phrased that question that way. Yeah. And you mentioned specifically the negative connotation with the word treatment in your, uh, in your paper. Do you feel that the results would have been any different, maybe skewed if you had used that type of language? Yeah, so, you know, in, in my history, having also you know, been a treatment provider and having worked with a lot of folks over the years, the, the general answer, if you ask a person with active opiate use disorder to, would you like treatment, the answer usually is, it depends. Um, and, you know, it depends by what you mean by that, and it depends how hard it is to get, and it depends how long it's going to take, and it depends um, how many hoops you're going to make me jump through. And it depends whether you're going to kick me out if I relapse, right? And so we didn't want to get into all that. We just want to know, do you want to stop or reduce your use? And I think we're very heartened to find that the vast majority of people said yes, which is not a surprise to any clinician, but is a surprise. I actually presented those data soon after we did that survey to our state legislature. And those legislators looked at me kind of with surprise when I said the majority of people with opioid use disorder want to stop or reduce their use. Because I think there's a, a public perception that, well, if people wanted to stop, they'd stop. Um, they, they're just they're choosing not to get treatment. 
um, or even that they're somehow having fun or getting away with something by continuing to use. And that's just not the case, but it is, for many people, the public perception. Now, you were able to draw some very useful conclusions from the study. Um, Particularly, you focused on the fact that being female was a positive factor associated with uh, increased interest in treatment, and methamphetamine use was a strong negative factor. And I was hoping that you could elaborate a bit on Mm -hmm. why, why you think we see these trends. Well... Um, you know, I think it's hard to know on the, the, um, why females might say they have a higher interest in stopping or reducing their use. Um, I might simplify and say that I think they're much more likely to be getting victimized or more traumatized in the context of their use. They often are using, um, either, uh, in a relationship where they may not have a lot of power or where they're actually engaged in sex work. And it's actually can be an escapist and survival mechanism to be using. So, They don't want to be using, and that use is also associated with other traumatizing and negative things going on. So we weren't able to document all of that in this uh, study, but that was an important thing that we often see with women. Um, I also think the methamphetamine thing is very interesting. I actually have another student working on that right now. Um, And what's interesting about methamphetamine is it is a very, very different drug than opioids. And having uh, worked with folks for a couple of decades with both substances, the issue with opioids is that I think it's fair to say that the main driver for people to use opioids, once they have opioid use disorder, is to not go into withdrawal. It is to avoid a negative consequence, right? And so that's, that's like if you could get rid of that, that's a good thing. They're not getting a lot of reward out of their opioid use anymore because the tolerance is so high. It's hard for them to get a high or a euphoric effect. So they're really just using to avoid something negative. Methamphetamine is different. Um, when we talk with folks, there's a lot of positive benefit that people are getting from methamphetamine. Yes, they're using it to avoid negative consequences, but they're also getting a lot of positive benefit. It may be really helping with their depression. It may be an appetite suppressant. It is an appetite suppressant. It is also a stimulant. So if you're a person who is homeless or poor, Um, those are pretty good reasons to want to use methamphetamine being an appetite suppressant and a stimulant. And also it is phenomenally cheap. Okay. Well, thank you. Now I wanted to also ask you if there's anything else that came out of the study that you'd like to highlight. Yeah. I, I, I want to share one other thing that I've learned is, you know, when I was doing my dissertation a decade ago and I was looking at, um, methadone maintenance treatment and I was actually looking at prescription opioid users and, uh, are they likely to do as well in methadone maintenance as heroin users? And the answer was yes. I actually reported a finding that I now regret how I said it. And what I said was, oh my goodness, just like cocaine decreases retention in methadone maintenance, methamphetamine also decreases retention in uh, methadone maintenance. And I put that on the patient. I put that in saying, those people who use methamphetamine are less likely to stay in treatment. And looking back on it now, I realized that that was a foolish way to say it. What I should have said is, Treatment providers who exclude or discharge people for stimulant use um, are less likely to retain those people. And I think that's really important here is to separate out. Um, we so often, including myself, as I think a fairly enlightened person, um, realize how much we're really still blaming people and saying they're failing treatment as opposed to realizing people don't want to be using. We need to set up services in a way that actually allows them to engage and stay in care. That's a great point. 
And yeah, even though the subjects would be very unlikely to read these studies, of course, it helps to um, it helps the culture to evolve to a point where we're being more effective and inclusive. Yeah, and I should say what we've just um, we're two years into a pilot project to pres- prescribe and dispense buprenorphine at syringe exchanges in Seattle area. We've been doing that for a couple of years now. We've expanded that to several other facilities locally, and we're expanding it statewide right now. So these findings aren't theoretical. They're already getting rolled out uh, into new forms of service delivery. Well, thank you, Dr. Bantagreen, for joining us today and for filling us in on the incredible work that you're doing. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Hope you have a good weekend. This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.